one of my um, one of my favorite stories to come out of of having kids in the school system here happened when when John was in middle school, and middle school for John it was the first opportunity that John had to join like an honest to goodness club. Our middle school is here in Grain Valley. If you didn't know, they have these cool after-school social clubs, one of which is called Gaming Club. Now, you got to know that any self-respecting preteen boy is going to see the title Gaming Club and immediately sign up. They'll be so busy dreaming of Xboxes and Playstations in the cafeteria, Minecraft and Fortnite and Madden during the playoffs, in school no less. They'll be too busy being excited about that to actually read the fine print of what Gaming Club actually is, which is how my son and a gaggle of his adolescent friends found themselves staying after school once a week to play Bunko. <clears throat> yeah, Bunko. Needless to say, they were sorely disappointed spending their afternoons playing a game that's normally reserved for non-adolescent ladies with bottles of wine, from what I've been told. I just hope, though, that the experience hasn't soured John or his friends on clubs later in life, because they can be a good source of like fun and, and social connection. Like anybody here belong to a club right now, or have you ever belonged to a club in your life? Maybe it's the Elks Club or the Rotary Club or PEO or the Sierra Club or the Heart of America Chinese Crested Dog Club. <laughs> Social clubs are good. And in case you're wondering if you're in a club, maybe you're like, maybe I am in a club and I didn't even know it. Well, here's the official Google, and everything's official when it's on Google. This is the Google definition of a social club. It's an association or an organization dedicated to our particular interest or an activity like a photography club. Now, here's an interesting bit of information that you might not know that the United Methodist Church, the Methodist denomination, actually began as a social club. You see, back in the 1700s, John and Charles Wesley and some of their friends, they got together at Oxford where they were studying three or four times a week to read scripture, to pray together, and to devote themselves and encourage each other to follow Jesus more closely. They were called by their other friends or the other people, their peers at the school, they were called somewhat derisively the Holy Club. They were the Holy Club. This association of college students and fellows, John Wesley was always quick to point out he had graduated, he was an Oxford fellow. And they were dedicated to a particular interest, like all social clubs in this case, deepening their faith. And some scholars have actually called this time when they were at Oxford the first rise of Methodism and its call to spiritual renewal, to revival. It wasn't actually until a number of years later that this holy club became a movement, the Methodist movement, which has up to now, like if you Wikipedia Methodist denominations, there are over a hundred Methodist denominations worldwide. This group formed a club in college in a dorm room, and now, 300 years later, there are, there are Methodists and Wesleyans all over the globe. 
You see, a movement is very different from a club. Because the reason for being of a club is to gather people around so that we can do the thing that we enjoy or that we have in common, that we've always done. And if you've ever been part of a club, you know one of the things that clubs don't like to do is change. Don't change the rules. Don't change the things that we've always done. Tradition, right? We want to keep it the same. In fact, most clubs that I've been involved in pride themselves on not changing sororities bunko clubs optimist clubs we don't like change but a movement on the other hand is defined by a quest for change because think about it i mean just in the name to move means to what it means to change your place to change your position your geographical location you're changing it so a movement by its name would not be a movement if it didn't advocate for move, change. Here's how dictionary.com defines a social movement. I love this word. A group of diffusely. Then I had to look up diffusely just to understand what the... It just varied and, and loose sometimes, loosely. So a group of diffusely organized people or organizations striving toward a common goal relating to human society or social change. So we had in the 60s and till today, the civil rights, what? Movement. In fact, actually this week, Martin Luther King Day was Monday. I watched the movie Selma. If you haven't seen it, it's a really good movie. And it's a perfect example of what a movement of people can do, striving toward this common goal, in this case, of changing Alabama voting laws so that people who had the right to vote in Alabama could actually vote. And eventually they secured the creation of the Federal Voting Rights Act for people all across the country. Now that's a movement, right? That's change. That's actually not voting specifically, but that's what John and Charles Wesley were after when they began the Methodist movement in earnest. They were seeking to change the hearts and the lives of people, the priests, in this case, the priests, the parishioners in the Church of England, to set their hearts and lives on fire for the Lord, to revive their faith and begin to live and do the things that Jesus actually called us to do. Once again, somewhere along the way, a lot of people point to the early half of the 20th century, but definitely by the 1950s, you might say the United Methodist Church in America was no longer part of a, a movement. In many cases, we look more like a club. <laughs> in the best cases, it's a holy club, but often... We became not much more than, than a social club gathering around and hanging out with like-minded Jesus people and dedicated to doing the activities that we like to do and not changing them, even if that meant inviting other people to do them. We didn't want to do that. We liked what we had. We were a club. I know it's, it's, it's been a long road today to kind of get us to Scripture, a lot of movement but I think I, I, it, it does us well, and it puts us in a good place to ask our two questions today, which is, what did Jesus do, and then what will I do? And here's what Jesus did. It's Matthew chapter 4. So this is right after our scripture last week. He's coming out of the wilderness, and this is what happens. When Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, the one who just baptized him, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth 
And he made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for what? People people immediately they left their nets and they followed him and as he went from there he saw two other brothers james son of zebedee and his brothers john those are the 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 sons of thunder and their father zebedee and mending their nets and he called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him jesus went throughout galilee teaching in the synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom curing every disease and every sickness among the people So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, you put a word on John's lips. You put that same word on Jesus' lips. So God, we pray now that we would hear from you, that you might put a word on our hearts, that it might become a word on our lips to others. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. That last bit there, did you hear it? Great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Great crowds follow him. He created a what? A movement. Right. Jesus wasn't part of no club. Jesus led a movement. Matthew's gospel is particularly enlightening because you can see how Jesus' role in this movement really began. We hear it in the first words of our reading today. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been what? Arrested. He withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth, made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Two things happened here. One, we're reminded that Jesus' earthly ministry is tied to the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus is baptized into John's movement, this movement that John has already begun. And in all four Gospels, Jesus' go time happens after John is arrested after John later is killed. It's this momentous time for Jesus to get going in earnest. Jesus has been baptized by John, tested in the wilderness, and now that John has been arrested, Jesus is ready. John's work isn't ended. Rather, he's prepared the way for Jesus to take over. And so Jesus goes to Capernaum. And this, just so you know, this is the area we're dealing with. So you see the big, the big blue line? Y'all see that? That's the Jordan River going from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. 
So that's up in the wilderness up to the north is kind of where John the Baptist was baptizing. You see down here at the bottom, there's Jerusalem, the big circle with the die in the middle, and Bethlehem to the southwest of that where Jesus was born. And then if you follow that white line all the way up, you'll find Nazareth. So that's where Jesus spent his early days. But after John the Baptist was arrested, what did Jesus do? He changes the headquarters of the movement, right? He says, no, I'm moving, I'm withdrawing even further north to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Because if you want to find fishers of people, I guess that's where you go. You go by the, by the sea to find, to find fishers of, 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 of fish. And so he goes to Capernaum, and when he's up there, you've got to think the region in, in our scripture is called the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were the first territories of the northern kingdom back in the Israelites' day. They were the first parts of the kingdom of Israel to fall, to become occupied. And now it's a region, even to, this, even to Jesus' day, that is firmly occupied by the Roman Empire. It's also a region of poorer population and a more difficult life. So when Jesus is ready to lead a movement, he goes to a place where people need change in their lives most. And when he's ready to lead the movement, he announces this common goal related to societal change. And he quotes, and he quotes really, John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the exact same goal, the exact same statement, the exact same proclamation that John the Baptist was crying out in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The exact same thing, repent in Greek, is the word metanoeo, which means really to turn or to change. There's that word again, right? To change, to change one's mind, to change one's heart. A common translation these days is to change your hearts and lives, to change. This ain't no club, right, committed to the status quo. This is a movement committed to change. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, both John and Jesus proclaim. You may be living in the kingdom of Rome. You may be feeling the oppression coming from the corrupt temple in Jerusalem, but don't be pulled into their way of thinking, their way of living. Repent, turn, and change, for a new kingdom is coming toward us. And so if we want to go toward the kingdom that's coming toward us, we have to what? we got to move a movement. A movement. Back to Selma. There's this triumphant moment in the movie of a movement. It's historic in Martin Luther King's life and the civil rights movement. The, the voting law is changed. They, they can do some things that they've never been able to do in the South. But at the end of the, move, of the movie, we know certainly the move, movement is not over. You know, sometimes the movement will get louder. Sometimes it will get quieter. Sometimes it gets off track. But even, even these days, we get reminders all the time that the movement is not over. Things continued after Selma, and even after MLK was assassinated, things changed. So after I watched the movie, because I remember my middle school history class, high school history class, like it was civil rights movement, Martin Luther King gets assassinated, and I don't remember learning much after that moment. So I, I watched the movie, I'm like, I want to know what happens next. And so especially thinking about the fact that after John the Baptist was arrested and then assassinated, guess what? Jesus picked up the movement and enlarged it, and magnified it. 
And so I wondered, who led the movement after MLK was assassinated? Anybody know? Right. That had to take guts, though. That had to take courage to step into a role that, frankly, led to the death of more, one, more than one black leader. And as a black man in the South, to say, all right, I want to do that, too. That had to take courage. And frankly, in Jesus' case, we know he stepped in after John the Baptist died, and he eventually, what? was put to death himself. But if you don't know, at the time of his death, King had shifted his focus and the focus of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to the issue of poverty. While civil rights laws were certainly a move in the right direction, what King and others realized was, it's great to have these rights, but if you don't have money, if you're living in poverty, you can't appreciate your rights the way you should. And so they shifted to an issue of poverty and And King and his close partner, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, began to work on what was called the Poor People's Campaign. And after King was shot, there was this fear that the campaign would end, that the movement, all of it, would have died with King. But Abernathy, Ralph Abernathy, picked up the mantle and he took leadership of this movement. It was a movement that would move its headquarters north to Washington, D.C., on the Mall. And on May 13, 1968, a caravan began in one place from Selma, Alabama, and they moved. They moved and they marched and they changed their headquarters north to Washington. Protesters and future residents of what would be called Resurrection City in D.C., they joined this caravan as it made its way across the south and then north to the capital, gathering people and more people as the movement gathered momentum It's diffusely organized people joined together, and eventually they occupied Washington, D.C. in what was called Resurrection City, and they occupied, and that city existed for 42 days. Now, let me tell you, as a pastor, I'm like, really? How many pastors were involved with this movement, and they overshot by two days? Why didn't you stay for 40 days? Because everybody knows, 40 days and 40 nights, that's when stuff really happens, but they went 42. What am I? To say to, but Resurrection City by the end had 3,000 residents and they even had their own zip code, 20013. But we all know all too well that unfortunately poverty ultimately wasn't eliminated as a result of this movement. People are still struggling for a living wage. People are still struggling for equal access to a government and a politic, political system that too often you have to have money to make anything happen to be heard. You see, the movement isn't over. Sometimes it's louder, sometimes it's quieter, and sometimes it gets off track, but the movement isn't over. But the fact that it even continued after its leader was murdered, to me, is an accomplishment in and of itself. Like, that people didn't stop believing in their cause or stop fighting for their cause after their leader was killed. Like, that someone would pick up the movement, the pieces of this movement, and then risk their own life to carry it on. Abernathy said that he always thought that he and King, he always just assumed that he and King would die together, (laughs) that they would be killed together. They were best friends, they were soulmates, the architects of the movement. Each one said that nothing could have happened without the other one. And Abernathy couldn't conceive of even himself as a human being without King right next to him. And so he said, it's my love for King ultimately that enabled me to carry on, enabled me to continue this movement which brings me back to Jesus and John the Baptist. 
You see, John the Baptist prepared the way. He laid the groundwork and prepared this repentance movement for the coming of Jesus. And then he was arrested and ultimately killed. And so Jesus picked up the movement. He moved its headquarters from the wilderness near the Jordan River to the city of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. And he picked up followers along the way. As he made his way around the Sea of Galilee, this movement gained its diffusely organized people, fishermen like Peter and Andrew, James and John. Later we'll see tax collectors like Matthew joining the movement. We'll even see zealots like Simon who was a member of a very different movement, but who found a better truth in Jesus' nonviolent movement. Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha, and so many others would join this movement as its caravan eventually headed to the capital, to Jerusalem. In fact, the end of chapter 4, by the way, of Matthew's gospel, it tells us just how quickly Jesus, is, Jesus multiplied this movement, this repentance caravan, and great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. And Jesus taught these crowds. We read he healed these crowds. He prepared the way for these crowds, for this disciples. He prepared for them to lead the movement after he was arrested, just like John. He prepared them to lead a movement after he was killed, just like John, so that his disciples would be there and able to continue a movement that wasn't over. He prepared the way with his teaching. He prepared them with his healing. He prepared them with his life. He prepared them to continue this repentance movement with his death and his resurrection. You see, the movement that Jesus started, that Jesus continued, that John had started, it isn't over. Sometimes the movement gets louder Man, I just in between read an, I read an article about how the number of churches in the United States declined this last year. Sometimes the movement gets quieter. Sometimes we get off track. But the movement isn't over. Not by a long shot. So back to our question. What did Jesus do? Well, he was baptized into John's repentance movement. And when that movement lost its leader, Jesus stepped up and he stepped in and he picked up that rallying cry, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he got moving and he didn't move alone. He gathered other people, a whole diffusely organized group of people who together formed a movement striving toward a common goal for people to change, for humanity to change, for people to be ready for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And he healed those others. He trained those others. He prepared those others, to lead the movement when he was gone. Remember his parting words in Matthew's Gospel, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything I have told you. Go grab some more people, baptize them into this movement, and show them how it's done so that the movement will continue. Because three years after Jesus took over the movement, he was gone. But he promised he'd be back because he knew that the movement isn't over. Sometimes it'll get louder. Sometimes it'll get quieter. Sometimes it'll get off track. But it isn't over. That leads us to our final question. What will I do? What will you do? Because this movement isn't over, 
the movement that John the Baptist prepared that Jesus shaped and led and ultimately defined with his life, death, and resurrection. This movement isn't finished. We aren't done changing ourselves or the world. So what will you do? Like, when you were baptized, when, when you maybe joined this church or another church, did you join a club, a social club, so that you can come together once a week and do the activity that you enjoy together and then go about your business, maybe, maybe drink some wine or grape juice while you're at it? Are you content to just hang around with some like-minded Jesus people and enjoy your weekly activity? Or did you join a movement? Are you ready to move? Are you ready to change your life and the lives of others? Are you ready to be a part of something that is bigger than you, bigger than this building, bigger than this community, size of the entire universe, big? Are you ready to join a movement. What will you do?